All right, so over the past month or so, we've been walking through the Exodus story as a church. The historical event. Let me say that again. The historical event. Right? It's not mythology. It is recorded fact. When God stepped into a nation of slaves and utterly freed them from bondage. After breaking their chains, he leads them into the wilderness in order to form them into a nation. Specifically, a nation that shows the world around them God's glory and the best ways that he created people to live. To do this, he gave them the law, a set of commandments that showed them how to best operate in their day-to-day lives. Over the past three weeks, we've looked at the first four of the Ten Commandments. We are now moving into the second six. Now, the reason why I categorize them into two different groups is because the first four are focused on how we should love God. And the second six are focused on how we should love those around us. You know, also, the first four show us what we must do in order to accomplish the second six. To make what I'm saying even more obvious, if you don't do the first four, you will not be able to do the second six. Let me explain this a little bit more. According to Jesus in Matthew 22, the first four are summed up as, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind, which he refers to as the greatest commandment. We are called to make God our priority, to elevate him above absolutely everything else. To do this, we're instructed to honor him with our words and set apart time to reflect on his goodness, Sabbath. Ben looked at that last week. It is only when we do this, the first four, that we will be able to do the second six. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. And do not covet. Or as Jesus puts it, love your neighbor the way that you want to be loved. Now, when it comes to the categories into which the Ten Commandments fall, loving God and loving others, they are written specifically in this order so that we can see their hierarchy, so that we can best understand how to accomplish what is put here. Specifically, to live holy lives, we must continually turn to the one who set us free, to the one who redeemed us from inescapable bondage. The words that we were just saying and echo that. Now, as we move into the instructions on how to best love those around you, I feel like I should warn you, this may be a convicting month of sermons. Right? Each of the commandments have the ability to directly apply to your life today. And they hit at the heart of our flesh, specifically our innate selfishness, which when that's poked, man, it causes people to squirm. But please, please know that they don't only exist to show us our need for a Savior. They are also God-given instructions for how we are created to live. You know, as you wrestle with putting God's plan for you into action, Never forget that the one who freed you from eternal separation, from that great chasm from your creator, is still at work within you, freeing you from your selfish chains. But also understand that our transformation tends to take time. Let me give you an analogy. So on my way up to church this morning, I really wanted some good fresh fruit and vegetables. I didn't have time to swing by the grocery store, so I just went in quickly to the convenience store, and of course I found what I want, because we always do, right? A bunch of really good, juicy-looking melons and green beans, and they were super cheap, and so I grabbed them, 
And I thought, man, this is such a great deal, and I'm more than happy to share what I got for you, right? Because this is the world we live in. Why would I not be able to get hundreds of what I want? Look how red and plump those are, right? And we live in a world of instant gratification, do we not? Because of this, so many of us assume that everything falls into the same approach. Because we can order almost anything and have it on our front doorstep, in two days, we assume that we can have genuine love for our neighbor, bulletproof fidelity for our spouse, endless respect for our parents, total contentment with what we have, and unwavering, regard, unwavering honesty regardless of the circumstance, commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, by simply being ourselves. I can get these by just being me. But according to the Bible, each of these qualities are not a byproduct of Amazon Prime, but rather the fruits of the Spirit. Think about that metaphor for a minute. Think about what it takes for an apple to exist. A seed is planted and nourished. Over years and years, a tree develops. At a certain point, the tree begins to produce apples, but those apples begin as a bud and then a flower. Slowly, they turn into a delicious fruit. Two things I want to point out here. The only place that an apple comes from is an apple tree. There is no other way to get an apple other than by going to an apple tree. There is also no other way to get what only God brings except by going to God. Second thing, an apple is never instantly produced. Rather, it takes time, seasons of being nourished by the tree in order to develop. The same is true with you and the deeper character traits that you and God want you to have. They take time and they are worth the wait. You know, this has just been a lot of me talking, but let me show you where I get some of this from. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He it is who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. And you want the gospel in three verses. In the same way that the fruit, that fruit slowly develops as long as it remains attached to the tree, you are being trained by the Spirit to be the best version you can be as long as you continually go back to your Creator and Savior. You know, as we start unpacking the rest of the Ten Commandments, please try to not let this escape your mind. In order to love your neighbor as you love yourself, you must first and continually love God with your whole life. Without God, the others cannot happen. And nothing of significant value happens overnight. Rather, it takes persistence and commitment. All right, so this morning, we're going to examine the sixth commandment, Exodus 20, 13. We'll get to honoring your father and mother in a couple weeks. This one's short, but there's a lot to it. You shall not murder. You know, in order to unpack these four words, we're going to look at the why, the what, and the how. Why should I not murder? How do I, what does it mean to not murder? And then how do I do this? So let's start with the why. 
Hopefully for all of us, this is a simple command, one that we do not have a problem agreeing with or even more so following. If you were born and raised in America, you have spent your entire life in a culture founded on biblical principles. At the core of, these, of this culture is the sacredness of life. Because of this, murdering another person has severe punishment. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself the question, why? This isn't the case when you're out hunting a deer or killing a squirrel. So why? In the biblical culture, has human life been elevated so far above the rest? You know, in order to answer this question, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 1. You know, after God made absolutely everything else in the universe and on our planet, he creates the crown of his creation. Not only were we the final act of creation, we were also uniquely made. We see this in Genesis 1.27. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Unlike the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, mankind was fashioned in the likeness of God himself. Now, we don't have time to really unpack all of this, but it at least means two things. We were made to create. Humanity has given the ability to produce, not simply consume. We were made to make good things. This means that we were created for specific purposes. Every single person who has ever lived was put onto planet Earth for specific reasons, so that way they could help bring about God's plan for his creation. So this means that when someone else takes another's life, they are stepping into God's shoes and changing the plans that he has already put into place. They are declaring that they know more about how things should play out than the almighty maker of everything. The second explanation for being made in God's image, similar vein. Every single one of us is beautifully unique. There is no one else like God. He is the one and only. And the same is true for you. There is no one else like you. There's only one Cheryl, one Jean, one Scott, one Darcy. So when someone ends your life, they have taken away something that is irreplaceable. According to the Bible, we are not a random random collection of cells brought together by chance. Instead, we have been handcrafted for specific purposes. And and please note that there is no contingency phrase or asterisk in this verse. That means that everyone, let me say that more emphatically, everyone is created in God's image and therefore has intrinsic value. That includes the homeless, those with mental disabilities, drug addicts. It also includes Democrats and Republicans those who never wear a mask, and those who never take them off. According to the Bible, absolutely everyone has been uniquely made to do what only they can do. Whether you've thought through this or not, this is one of the guiding principles that has helped to establish the cultural norms of what we know. This is is one of the reasons why murder is so strongly opposed by Christian nations. Right now you may be thinking, I agree, preacher. Do not murder, even Democrats. Check that one off the list. Mission accomplished. Fortunately for us, Jesus takes us beneath the surface of this commandment and answers the what behind do not murder. Let's look at Matthew 5, 21 through 26. This is 
the beginning, really, of the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus himself. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother and sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Suddenly the sixth commandment becomes far more inclusive, doesn't it? In a Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows us the reality of the law. In this passage, he explains that God is not only concerned with the physical death of another, he is also very interested in the emotional, mental, and relational health of his creation. Jesus clearly explains that anger and insult are just as liable to punishment as literally taking someone's life. So that means when I, get, when I got mad and yelled at my son, who was once three, and he was freaking out in the backseat of my car, right? that means that I broke the sixth commandment. That means when I rit me mentally ridicule somebody sitting next to me at the stoplight that has their mask on in the car by themselves, God sees that as similar to murder. Now you may be wondering, why would God do this? Why would he put anger and insult on the same pedestal as murder? This is just my thought. But it's because God is the maker of life. And he wants life to continue for what he has made. Life isn't solely defined as the blood in our veins and breath in our lungs. Life is also being loved. It is also knowing that you are worthwhile in other people's eyes. Life is also having confidence in who God made you to be. So much of the life that God wants us to have comes from those around us. Let me give you some examples of my life as I've been meditating on this. You know, I have a five-year-old daughter who is all about physical affection. And when I hold her in my arms, she whispers things like, you are the best daddy I've ever had. How is that not life? Right? Or that look on my wife's face. We've been married 15 years, and it's only happened a handful of times when I can tell she intensely loves me. You guys know that look? Right? Or the joy that I experience when I'm mountain biking or climbing with close friends. These are experiences that build me up. They create energy within me. They intensify my drive to live well. By being made in God's image, we have been given the ability and responsibility to create life in other people. I like how Paul put it in 1 Thessalonians 5. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Build them up. Give them life. But unfortunately, we can, do, we can cause the exact opposite to happen as well. Things that are opposite to life, otherwise known as death, come from those who are in our lives. And death is far more than just when our hearts stop. Death is being betrayed by a friend. It is also being made fun of in a hurtful way. It is also being ridiculed for who you are or for the inabilities you have. 
each time we choose to bring anger or hatred or mockery into another world, another's world, instead of creating, we are destroying. Every single one of us has the power to inhibit or even destroy another person's life. For Jesus and his Father, this is the same thing as murder. To make this application completely obvious, it means that when we are, that we, it means that we are going against God's design each time we judge someone for making poor choices or yell at our kids when they make us mad or condemn someone because of their political beliefs or because they've chose to wear a mask or not wear a mask. Whether you do it to their face or behind their back, you are devaluing their life. You are labeling them as less than good enough. You are bringing death instead of life. And I warned you about conviction. I've been struggling with this all week long. You have to remember, this is coming straight from the Bible. But do not forget that the Ten Commandments are there for two reasons. To show us that we need a Savior. Right? And when we cry out to Jesus, we are fully cleansed from every act of unrighteousness we have ever committed and we ever, we ever will commit. Right? If you don't believe me, look at Hebrews 10.14, Hebrews 10.18. Purified once and for all. But the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount also exist to show us the best way to live to show us how to operate the way that God created us to operate. Because when we follow our Creator's design, life is better for everyone. So now we're on to the how. How do we do this? How do we fight against our innate desire to judge, ridicule, and shame those who do not live the way that we think they should? I already answered this, but I'll make it obvious. The only way we can do this is by continually going back to the source of life. The one who created you and the one who saves you is the only one who can empower you to love other people well. In the same way that God put breath into your lungs and caused the sun to rise this morning, he wants to give you the ability to build others up in love. He wants to use you to bring life to those around you, to create more of the world that he initially had created before we got in the way. But it is a choice specifically your choice. Do I listen to and be guided by my own selfishness or by the Spirit of God? Right, again, this isn't me. Galatians 5. Such a powerful passage. We'll just cruise through it, but if it sticks with you at all, please go back and meditate on it. Galatians 5.16, live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery. Now we start our list of do not murder. Enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and these, and things like these. I warned you, I'm warning you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, here's the other side of it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Think about things that build people up. Peace, Patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Last verse makes our choice so obvious. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. You hear that choice in there? That we are given every single moment of every day. Whatever situation we are in and whatever choice lies ahead of us, we are given a choice of being guided by God himself or the desires of our flesh or our innate selfish tendencies. Do I react in anger to my coworker or my kid or my neighbor when they try to do things that I do not like? Or do I respond in love by being patient, kind, gentle, and practicing self-control? Do I react in opposition when I come across someone who has a different political or social view than I do? Or do I respond with love and kindness in hopes that peace will eventually occur? And because we live in a society, because we're surrounded by others all day long, we are constantly given this choice. Do I build up or do I tear down? According to Paul, the source of our response is either the works of the flesh or the fruits of their spirit. That means that the way we respond to any person on any given day is either flowing out of the selfish, our selfish nature or is a byproduct of God himself. Now our fleshly tendencies are described as works or as things that naturally flow out of our broken nature. It is more of a natural reaction. Right? And if we had time, we could all share stories about how we reacted in anger. And then these things, these reactions, are largely supported by our culture. Now, where the God-given and God-desired qualities, they're described as fruits, the things that do not instantly happen, but rather slowly develop. And they are fruits of the Spirit not of your own goodness, not of your, like, just optimism, not of, I'm nice, therefore this will come out of me. They are fruits of the Spirit. That means they come from God himself. So if we want to be those who bring life into this world, then what must we do? Continually go back to the source of all of life. If we, want to be, if we want to use the limited time that we've been given to create good, then we must daily make God our priority. We must intentionally invite him into our days. Now, there are endless ways to do this, from morning devotionals to small groups to worship services, practicing the Sabbath. It's awesome how many ways we have to elevate God to the forefront of our, our minds. But as I finish, I want to give you one that I found to be really useful for me this week. I spent the entire week meditating, struggling, bringing this back to God. I want to go back to my fruit analogy. In order for anything worthwhile to grow, it must be nourished. For me, I found that when I turn to the Spirit in small ways, it encourages, even empowers me to be able to stick with God and His plan in the midst of the biggest challenges. So next time you're sitting at a stoplight next to someone, watching the news or reading the paper or having a conversation with someone at work and you feel the work of the flesh starting to flow out, invite God into that moment. Instead of reacting in jest at the person in the car next to you, getting angry at those you work with, or 
getting upset at a dog that I was walking last night because Boomer asked me to watch it for the last week, right? Invite God into that moment. Ask him to show you how to build up instead of tear down. Ask the maker of everything to give you the power to bring life to those around you. Start in the small. Try this out week, try this out this week and see what happens. I promise you, you have endless opportunities. You know, as the musicians come up, we finish with a song, you have the option to take communion. There's two tables at the back. I just want to remind you, if you don't know, these are simply symbols. They in and of themselves are not holy. But as you think about those symbols, think about the way that Jesus built you up and continues to build you up. Think about the way that he was willing to lay down his pride, his selfishness, in order to bring you the life that you need.